The following resource is from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Hope you all got a handout um, tonight on, uh, on Augustine, St. Augustine. Uh, right on the cover is probably the most famous quote of all the incredibly huge number of words that he wrote. Uh, right from the beginning of Confessions, first paragraph of Confessions, he said this, You awaken us to delight in praising you, for you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Uh, that's from his Confessions, what's called a spiritual autobiography, one of the greatest books ever written, a very interesting book in which he describes his testimony, his pilgrimage of how he came to faith in Christ entirely in second person. You, 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 you. Then you did this, then you did that, etc. It's very difficult to write like that, but the whole thing was really a prayer uh, of thanksgiving to God uh, for what he had done in saving him. So in uh, Hebrews 11.4, you don't have to turn there, but it's talking about the great heroes of the faith. And uh, John Piper did a ser- has done a series called Men of Whom the World Was Not Worthy. That's a quote from Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11.4 talks about Abel, and it says about Abel, uh, by faith he speaks even though he's dead. And that's a very interesting concept, isn't it? But I think what, what it is is when these people leave behind a legacy, uh, when they write things, when things are written about them, and we come along later and read about them, in, either in Scripture or in history, the things that they wrote, the things that they did, they speak to us. Uh, They speak a strong message to us. And if I look at the life of Augustine, what I get for myself, I mean, there's so much you could get, but I get his incredible passion for God, his love for God. There's an intensity to his love for God, and it makes me feel like my heart is cold by contrast. It makes me yearn to love God more. It makes me yearn to pray more, to worship God more intensely and more passionately. It makes me yearn to know Christ. And I think that's a good thing. And so if all we get out of that, out of our very comically brief study of Augustine tonight, comically brief because the topic's so immense, uh, if what you get out of that is, I yearn to know God better. I want to be deeper in my prayer life. I want to pour out my heart and passion to him. Then, that, then our time will be well spent. Turn the page, if you would. And uh, I have another uh, quote from uh, Confessions. And you see a sense of, of Augustine's love for God and his knowledge of God. I am not going to be reading the Latin to you. I tried it this afternoon. I couldn't get through it without making a mistake. So, um, but this is the translation on the right-hand side. This is in Confessions 1, uh, Book 1, Chapter 4. What art thou then, my God, most highest, most good, most potent, most omnipotent, most merciful and most just, most hidden and most present, most beautiful and most strong, standing firm and elusive, unchangeable and all-changing, never new, never old, ever working, ever at rest, gathering in and yet lacking nothing, supporting, filling, and sheltering, creating, nourishing, and maturing, seeking, and yet having all things. And what have I now said, my God, my life, my holy joy? Or what says any man when he speaks of thee? And woe to him who keeps silent about thou, since many babble on and say nothing. Do you see the intensity and the passion of his love for God? There's just a depth of worship there. Uh, the poetry in the Latin doesn't come across in the English, uh, but there's a, a rhythm, a cadence, 
uh, alliteration. There's a number of things, but he's just pouring out a great love for God in confessions. Now, Augustine lived... Let's get a little bit of background. If you want more about Augustine, I would suggest a good entry point is Piper's uh, Legacy of Sovereign Joy. A lot of the information, some of the quotes come from that, so you can get that uh, in a variety of places. But let's start with the fall of Rome. In 410 AD, as I've mentioned before in a, in a sermon and, and at other times in teaching, the unthinkable happened. Finally, in 410 AD, uh, Rome was sacked. Rome fell to the barbarians. Now, it had been a long time in coming, uh, and uh, it was a significant moment. St. Jerome in Palestine at the time said, if Rome can perish, what can be safe? Now, that's an important question, isn't it? The fact is, if what you mean by safe is something earthly that never changes, then the answer is nothing. There's nothing in this world, nothing you can see with your eyes or hear with your ears, nothing you can experience with your five senses that is eternal and permanent. Everything's changeful. And the older you get, the more you see that that's true. But we have a city with foundations, don't we, whose builder and maker is God. And our heart is set on that future city. The stronger you are in your faith, the more you live for that place, the more you, in Colossians 3, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. But I'll tell you, when Rome fell at the time, the entire kind of Christian world, the Roman world, shook and trembled. Rome didn't perish immediately. It took 66 more years until the final Western emperor was dethroned by the Germans. Augustine was 55 years old at the time. He was in the prime of his ministry, and it was shocking to him. And as a result, he wrote, it uh, it got deleted there, but he wrote The City of God. Now, his writing, The City of God, is one of the great writings, and it's the first attempt to write a synthesized history of the world uh, from a Christian point of view. What he was doing is defending Christianity from some Romans who had a memory of the time when when Rome was strong, and who are basically blaming the fall of Rome on Christianity, saying with its ethic of turning the other cheek and loving your enemies and all that, and its minimizing of earthly empires, uh, no wonder Rome fell. You know, if only we could go back to the old pagan days, Rome would still be strong and all that. And so he takes up pen to defend Christianity against these slanderous attacks. But more than that, to help them to lift their eyes above the, the immediate, the temporal. The city of Rome was not everything. There is an eternal city, a city of God. And that's where we should have our hearts set. That's what he wrote for. August 28, 430, Augustine died at that moment. 80,000 vandals, it should be capital V, not just like vandalism, but literally a tribe, a German tribe, a pagan tribe, uh, were on their way to besiege a city in North Africa where he was. Augustine had heard that several other Catholic bishops had been tortured to death by the invaders. His council of elders gathered around him and urged uh, him using Jesus' words, when you are persecuted in one town, flee to the next. So the advice is, get out of town, fast. Uh, Augustine answered, let not one dream of holding our ship so cheaply that the sailors, let alone the captain, should desert her in time of peril. So he had a great courage. Now this is at the very end of his life. He was not afraid to die. Died four months later before the city was overrun. Now he had been bishop in Hippo, which is in North Africa, since 396. Five years before that, he'd been appointed priest and elder and had uh, preached, uh, served one church in Hippo about 40 years. He gained an empire-wide reputation as a God-saturated man. He was articulate. He was persuasive, a passionate defender of the faith against three great attacks, Manichaeism, Donatism, and Pelagianism. We'll talk about them briefly. Just before he died, he handed over the reins to Heraclius. Imagine being Heraclius and preaching your first sermon as bishop of Hippo, and Augustine's right there listening to you. How daunting is that? It's very troublesome. I remember when I was in, um, in Louisville, the, the pastor there, uh, it's right near Southern Seminary, and the pastor preached a message on the book of Ruth. 
Well, sitting in the congregation was a man who wrote a commentary in the book of Ruth and who's a professor of Old Testament and Hebrew language at Southern Seminary. And so he's very afraid to preach this sermon in front of a man who had written a commentary. After he got done, he went up and uh, said, well, how did I, how did I do? And the man smiled and just said, God is gracious. <laughs> so I don't know if that's good or not. Of course, he's gracious, but I wouldn't find that encouraging. Um, but uh, you can imagine being Heraclius preaching a sermon in front of Augustine, you know. And so what he said was, uh, the, chi- the cricket chirps, the swan is silent. So Augustine just sat there listening. He says, I'm just a cricket. He's a swan. And uh, Piper picked up on that uh, to entitle his book, The Swan is Not Silent. Because of all of uh, Augustine's incredible writings, because of his amazing influence over Christianity, 16 centuries later still, uh, the swan is not silent, hasn't been for all this time. Let's talk about the overwhelming influence of this man, Augustine. Christian History Magazine said, after Jesus and Paul, Augustine of Hippo is the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. You stop and think about that, and I think it's true. If you're talking about influence, the the effect on the flow of of church history, um, I would I would say that this is true. Benjamin Warfield, B.B. Warfield said, um, entered both the church and the world as uh, Augustine entered the church and the world as a revolutionary force and not merely created an epoch in the history of the church, but, but, but determined the course of its history in the West up to the present day. He also said the whole development of Western life in all its phases was powerfully affected by his teaching. Amazingly, his influences flowed into remarkably contradictory uh, camps. He is a Roman Catholic saint and yet is perhaps the most revered church father in the Roman uh, Catholic tradition. And along with that, he is held in honor by Protestants. As a matter of fact, Luther was an Augustinian monk. He, he found his doctrine of justification by faith alone and salvation by grace alone by reading the works of Augustine. It's really quite remarkable. So you had Catholic scholars and Protestant scholars arguing with each other over the meaning of Augustine. Some uh, One scholar put it this way, that the Reformation was about Augustine's doctrine of the church fighting against Augustine's doctrine of salvation. Uh, Augustine set up the sacramental system and a lot of the things that became perverted and twisted to some degree so that you could earn your salvation by the sacraments. Uh, Augustine never taught that, but they thought he did. So they misunderstood his teachings, etc., uh, as over against his doctrine of God's sovereignty against the Pelagians, of, of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, and so they had to work it out. But again, the influence is, is really quite remarkable. Agostino Trape said this, Augustine was a philosopher, theologian, mystic, and poet all in one. His lofty powers complemented each other and made the man fascinating in a way difficult to resist. He is a philosopher, but not a cold thinker. He's a theologian, but also a master of the spiritual life. He's a mystic but also a pastor. He is a poet, but also a controversialist. Every reader thus finds something attractive and even overwhelming, depth of metaphysical intuition, rich abundance of theological proofs, synthetic power and energy, psychological depth shown in spiritual ascents and a wealth of imagination, sensibility, and mystical fervor. I think all of that's true. I like this uh, whole aspect of visiting the Alps. An ancient biographer of Augustine cataloged his overall writings, listen to this, at over a thousand pieces, over a thousand pieces this man wrote, including 262 books, 262 books. Uh, Isidore of Seville, a, a theologian, had what he believed was a complete set of Augustine's works, although he wasn't sure. And he put a plaque over it and said, anyone who claims to have read all of Augustine is a liar. 
So it's quite simple. It's a plaque over this, this bookshelf with book after book written just by Augustine. I mean, think about this. If you said, all right, I'm going to make my life work just reading Augustine. You've got 262 books to get through. I mean, if you live to be 90 or 80, you can calculate how much reading you'll have to do. Uh, you probably won't get through it all. Uh, Benedict Groeschel, uh, visiting the Augustinian Heritage Institute of Jason of Villanova University, he, he cataloged books on or by Augustine from their own library. He, he calculated that Augustine's own words on computer amount to 5 million. 5 million words that this man wrote. And you think this is before the days of, you know, the computer, the microprocessor and all that. He wrote it pen and paper. Five million words. He said this, I felt like a man beginning to write a guidebook on the Swiss Alps. After 40 years, I can still meditate on one book of the confession during a week-long retreat and come back feeling frustrated that there's still so much more gold to mine in those few pages. I, for one, know that I shall never in this life escape from the Augustinian Alps. Piper said this, he said, but there's still profit for even, from even a one-hour visit to the Alps. All right, so even though, and for us it's more like half hour. Um, so, you know, even, even though we could never plumb all the depths of the things that this man wrote, still it's beneficial. Um, five key works. If you want to study, I, I would begin with the Confessions. You can get that in almost any significant bookstore. You know, you go to uh, uh, Barnes & Noble or, or um, Borders or any of these places, uh, and you can get Confessions. It's never, ever out of print and never will be. Uh, it's easy to get. And uh, I'll tell you, you could just read it as a companion to the Bible in your uh, own quiet times over the next number of months. It will, de- it will deepen your prayer life. It will deepen your, your love for God. Uh, on Christian Doctrine, the Enchiridion, on Faith, Hope, and Love, these are some other books on the Trinity. Uh, and, of course, the City of God. These are probably some of the major works of Augustine if you want to study some more. Let's talk about his life. He was born in uh, modern... Uh, Algeria, uh, Thagaste is the uh, ancient place in North Africa. He was an African, uh, Carthaginian, I guess, of Carthaginian descent, uh, but a member, obviously, of the Roman Empire. He's born November 13, uh, 354. He died almost 76 years later in Hippo, uh, again in Algeria, in the Mediterranean, 60 miles away. Uh, his family, his father, uh, Patricius was his name, a man who was a pagan man until his deathbed, fiery temper, pagan habits until the final year of his life. He was baptized on his deathbed. Uh, his wife, Monica, finally got him after, after huh? Say again. Yeah, finally, finally, uh, finally got him. She prayed for him daily until he finally converted. Uh, however, he had a terrible effect on young Augustine as he was growing up with his uh, pagan ways. His mother, Monica, was one of the truly saintly mothers of the ancient world, saw all three of her children and her husband become Christians before she died. What a great heroine of the faith. I mean, talk about examples of uh, Christian courage and perseverance. Uh, frequently, Augustine would come find her and find her down on her knees weeping over his soul. I mean, that'll shatter you if you're an errant son living a sinful, profligate life and you find your mother weeping and praying for you. I mean, that's tough. It's tough to, uh, to handle that. Um, but at any rate, she was a godly woman and faithful in prayer. Uh, his upbringing, his father was a middle-income farmer and provided an education and rhetoric for him. Basically, he was going to be a middle-class guy with an average, uh, uh, average education and, and pull down an average salary. There was nothing particularly spectacular about Augustine's uh, training in his early life. It wasn't long before he became dissolute or sinful in his habits, and his family really did nothing to stop him. He says this in Confessions, Book 2, Chapter 2, As I grew to manhood, I was inflamed with a desire for a surfeit of hell's pleasures. 
My family made no effort to save me from my fall by marriage. Their only concern was that I should learn how to make a good speech and how to persuade others by words. They just wanted to be able to hold down a job, really. And so uh, he was uh, immediately kind of led into a life of lust, really. He said, My father took no trouble at all to see how I was growing in your sight, O God, or whether I was chaste or not. He cared only that I should have a fertile tongue. And so immediately he began struggling with sin. He left for Carthage to study for three years. His mother warned him against fornication, especially against seducing another man's wife. But he arrived at Carthage burning with lust. He said this, I went to Carthage where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. My real need was for you, my God, who are the food of my soul. I was not aware of this hunger. So he was trying to feed his hunger for God by sexual sin. He was trying to feed his hunger for God by lust. And it wasn't satisfying to him. Someone said lust is like giving uh, salt water to a thirsty man. Okay, immediately perhaps there's a sense of, of relief, but then it just makes you thirstier. And, and it was just an addiction for him uh, on and on. Uh, so, and, and also, you know, realize this is like, this is uh, 4th century A.D. People have not changed much. We, we, we face the same struggles. You know, one of the reasons people say, what is there in the Bible? Non-Christians say, what is in their Bible for me? It's written so long ago. You know, well, there's two great truths that make the Bible relevant to us today. One is that God never changes. He's always the same. So whatever is true about God in the Bible is true about him today. The second is it seems people don't change either. And they face the same things in every generation. And so here's a young man facing the issue of sexual purity. And he was not doing well at all. He was successful in rhetoric, uh, making a career for it for himself. But he found it empty. He took a concubine, let's take a live-in girlfriend, in Carthage, who stayed with him for 15 years, and she bore him a son named Adiodatus. What's interesting is we don't know her name. He was with her for 15 years, and we know the son's name, but we don't know her name. So in all of his writings, five million words, he never mentions her name. But she was a significant part of his life before he was a Christian. He was a teacher of rhetoric from age 19 to 30, but just living a sinful life. John Piper said he was a profligate until he was 31 and a celibate until he was 75, until he died. So total radical change in his life. Yeah. Oh, just just uh, living a sinful, dissolute life. Just just. Uh, yeah, sinning immorally. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate that. So, uh, his conversion story. It took a long, long, long time to be converted. It's not the kind of thing where just overnight suddenly he came to faith in Christ. You know how we hear uh, of Saul's conversion in Acts 26, and how the Lord spoke to Saul from heaven. Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then he said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. See, goads are things that stick in you and make you do something in a certain way. Uh, and uh, in a way, there were things in Saul's life that were leading him to faith in Christ, but he was resisting them. He was fighting against them. And, and it's so amazing how Jesus says from heaven, it's hard for you, isn't it? It's not hard for me. <laughs> okay, I'm not moving. I'm not going anywhere. The goads are fine. They're made out of steel or some kind of metal. They'll be there. But if you, the animal, you keep kicking against them, you're just going to get bloody hoofs. All right, so stop kicking. In effect, it's just an act of compassion. Say, why don't you, why don't you believe in me now? <laughs> and and there are also those kind of prods or goads in Augustine's life. There were things that were leading him to trust in Christ, um, but he was resisting. Uh, at age 19, he read Cic- uh, Cicero's Hortensius. And God used it to turn him from open just wickedness and immorality to study philosophy. Philosophy is a study of virtue, study of morals apart from God. 
And uh, so it, it brought him more into a line of a somewhat of a virtuous or moral life, but not through any knowledge of God. Uh, from there, he went into a religion called Manichaeism. Manichaeism was very popular in, in its day. There's a summary of it later in the outline here, but I'll, I'll just give you briefly what it's about. It was started by a prophet, pseudo false prophet, really named Mani, who lived in, in Babylon, uh, I think in the third century AD. It was a dualistic system. It, did, it, it believed that the universe was created by a good creator, but the good creator wasn't all powerful. And there was an equal and opposite uh, bad destroyer. So a good creator and a bad destroyer, and they're constantly fighting it out. A dualistic system means there's good fighting against evil on more or less equal terms. Christianity is not dualistic. We believe that God could shut down evil instantly at any moment. He could pull the plug on Satan at any time. One great evidence for that is how fearful the demons are of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? They're always terrified of Jesus. If they're fighting on equal terms, they would, they would get ready for the battle and all that. But they are absolutely terrified of Jesus, second person of the Trinity, that he's going to throw them in the pit before the time. So Christianity is not dualistic, but Manichaeism is, and that there's basically an equal battle. Uh, the teaching uh, is that the evil came from an invasion of the kingdom of light by the kingdom of darkness, equal in power, eternal, totally separate. Individual people were created good, but something alien came from the outside and hijacked people to do evil things. Manny, the prophet of this view, rejected the Old Testament as an emanation from that evil kingdom. It was the words of the devil masquerading as an angel of light. Augustine was attracted, listen, to the basic idea that his struggle with sin was a struggle with something that was alien to his true nature. Why would that be enticing to him? Pride. It's not his fault. I'm basically a good person. If I could just kind of get rid of this problem, I'm basically at core a good person. And so that was very enticing. It was very alluring. And also you get rid of the Old Testament as a corrupt kind of emanation of an evil demiurge. So there's no evil demon wrote the Old Testament. So you just get rid of that. Uh, eventually, uh, he came to see the falsehood of the system and he became the leading opponent of Manichaeism uh, because he knew it so well. He knew it from the inside. So he was able to attack it and to, and to defeat it. Uh, at age 29, he moved from Carthage to Rome to teach. He became fed up with students <laughs> and moved to a teaching post in Milan. You know, it's, it's hard to teach if you don't love the students. You know, it's like, you know, teaching would be great if it weren't for the students. You know, well, they're the ones that pay your salary, buddy. So that didn't, didn't work too well. Two key occurrences, though, happened when he moved to Milan. First, he discovered Neoplatonism by reading Plotinus. And second, he met the great Archbishop Ambrose of Milan. Uh, Plotinus recovered Plato's vision in, in Augustine of one transcendent God, all right? Taught the need for freedom from the fleshly nature through rigorous self-discipline. Wrongly, however, taught the inherent evil of the material world. The system helped wean Augustine from Manichaeism. It became, in effect, a way station to biblical faith. So you see, little by little, he's moving closer and closer to the gospel. But he's still got a kind of a dualistic idea that the body is evil. The physical body is essentially evil and that um, that the spirit alone is, is good. Then there was Ambrose. Now, Ambrose was a godly man, a Christian. He was the bishop of Milan, an excellent preacher, a uh, gifted preacher of the word and a disciple of men. Uh, this is what uh, con- he wrote in Confessions about, about Ambrose. In Milan, I found your devoted servant, the bishop Ambrose. At that time, his gifted tongue never tired of dispensing the richness of your corn, the joy of your oil, and the sober intoxication of your wine. Unknown to me, it was you who led me to him so that I might knowingly led by him, be led by him to you. So in other words, God sovereignly brought him to Milan to hear this man preach. 
and this man led him to led him to Christ. So a very powerful influence of you know, Ambrose hearing uh, in preaching the gospel. Now his Neoplatonism was scandalized by the idea that the Word became flesh, but that's the truth, isn't it? Isn't the fact that Jesus became flesh teach us? Doesn't that teach us that flesh isn't evil? It destroys that dualistic way of looking at the body. And so he's scandalized by it, but what could he say? It was at the core of Christianity, and he was intrigued by it. He came week after week and listened to Ambrose's beautiful sermons. However, he was still controlled by lust. He was still held in the bonds of sexual lust. Monica had arranged a society marriage for him, but he was required to send away his concubine. This he did with great reluctance, but he couldn't control himself for the two years until his marriage, and soon he had another mistress. So he just could not stop himself from sinning sexually. Very, very difficult. And then came his famous conversion. Uh, this is a, one of the most famous conversion stories in church history. Uh, he wrote, writes in Confessions 8.6, O Lord, my helper and my redeemer, I shall now tell and confess to the glory of your name how you released me from the fetters of lust which held me so tightly shackled and from my slavery to the things of this world. So he's relating how God actually saved him from this sin. It was late August 386. Augustine was almost 32 years old. He was pondering the holy example of Antony, who was a, uh, uh, an ascetic and a monk who had lived many years before in Egypt and who had achieved such mastery over his earthly ap- appetites. He felt painfully acutely his battle with lust. He went to a private garden uh, in the house of his friend Olypius. The uh, house had a garden. This is what he wrote. There was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. I now found myself driven by the tumult in my breast to take refuge in this garden where no one could interrupt that fierce struggle in which I was my own contestant. I was beside myself with madness that would bring me sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting your will and entering into your covenant. I tore my hair and hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and hugged my ears or hugged my knees. I flung, I flung myself down beneath the fig tree. You see this physical anguish. He just is so sick of feeling sinful and wicked and guilty, but he just can't seem to stop. He's battling against sin, but he's doing it by himself. And there's nothing he can do. He doesn't know what to do. So he says, I flung myself down beneath the fig tree and gave way to the tears which now stream from my eyes. In my misery, I kept crying, how long shall I go on saying tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? All at once, I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say. But again and again, it repeated the refrain, take it and read, take it and read. Tole lege, tole lege, just Latin, just a little sing-song. It was like a nursery rhyme. And... Isn't it amazing? I mean, here's this guy, maybe literally pulling his hair out over, over his sin, and then this voice of a little child singing a song, take up and read. Read what? Uh, at this I looked up, thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant words like these, but I couldn't remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up, telling, me, telling myself this could only be a divine command to open my book of Scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. Now, don't, don't do this as a good thing to do, you know, a holy dipping or whatever it's called. Flip it open and point. It's not generally a good idea, all right? But uh, 
You know, I just preached on this passage, Romans 13. It's interesting. I didn't have time. I thought about mentioning this whole story, but the sermon was already too long as it was, as you well remember. Um, so I thought I'm not going to add this whole account of how this one passage converted him, but there it was. So I hurried back to the place where Olypius was sitting, seized the book of Paul's epistles and opened it. And in silence, I read the first passage in which my eyes fell, not reveling in drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalry. Rather, arm yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites, Romans 13, 13 and 14. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was the light of confidence flooded in my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. Now, later on, he'll write what, what the issue was. And the issue was that God has the sovereign power to give the very thing he commands. That's what flooded into his mind. As a matter of fact, I'm going to skip this uh, this account of his life because we're running out of time and go ahead to the stuff on Pelagianism and you'll see how he interprets his own conversion. Let's see if I can find it here. Now, here it is. It's on page 11. Let's go ahead and read it. This is how he talks about his own uh, his own conversion. Bottom of page 11. And my whole hope is only in your exceeding great mercy. Give what you command and command whatever you will. You see that? Wow, that's powerful. My whole hope is only in your exceeding great mercy. Give what you command and command whatever you will. You impose sexual purity upon us. Nevertheless, when I perceive, said someone, that I could not otherwise obtain her except God gave her to me, that was a point of wisdom also to know whose gift she was. Oh, charity, my God, kindle me. You command sexual purity. Give what you command and command what you will. What is he saying there? God commands perfect holiness, doesn't he? I mean, not just sexual purity. He commands be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You have to be absolutely as perfect as God is. He commands that. What is the insight here? Tell me. What's the insight of the gospel? The very thing that God commands, what? He has to grant it or you won't get it. He's proven that his whole life, hasn't he? If God doesn't give it, he won't get it. And so what happened, the truth that flooded in was the gospel of grace. That basically for a child of God, every command of God is a promise from God. Isn't that beautiful? If he commands you to be perfect, it really is a promise, isn't it? How is a command a promise? How is a command to be perfect also a promise to a child of God? He will make you perfect by his grace. How is a command to be perfectly chaste? Also promise he will make you that way. And so he uh, worked this incredible miracle of grace in Augustine's life. So he was converted. Go back to um, where we were at, page, uh, where is it, 8. Baptized by Ambrose, Easter 387. He returned to Carth- Carthage. He became a priest and then a bishop. Monica died. Um, skip down. Uh, in 391, he went to Hippo. Bishop Valeria saw him in the congregation, put aside his prepared sermon and preached on the urgent need for priests in Hippo. A moving of the Spirit. We need, we need people just like you. You know, that kind of thing. So it's actually the same thing that happened in Charles Spurgeon, which the primitive Methodist pastor that Andy referred to earlier addressed him directly. You look miserable, young man. And you'll continue to be miserable, this kind of thing. So God, you know, working directly. I'm not likely to do that unless the Holy Spirit overcomes me powerfully. And I say something to one of you. Now, I don't know who it's going to be. But uh, at any rate. 
So Valerius was shrewd and led him into the ministry and he took it up. Now, uh, I don't want to go into all the controversies, Manichaeism and Donatism. You can read about them. Uh, we've already mentioned Manichaeism and how he fought against it. Donatism, you can read about on page 10. The key fight for him in his life, I think, was toward the end, and that was the fight against Pelagianism. The basic idea on Pelagianism is that we are given a pure, free will, and we can, at any moment, unaided, choose to do right whenever we want. We can choose to love God. We can choose to believe in Jesus, or we can choose not to. The the will is completely unfettered at any moment, and therefore your salvation is totally dependent on you. The gospel is there for you to believe or not. It's up to you to believe it. The commands are there to obey or not. It's up to you to to obey. You have free will. It's a total denial of original sin, total denial of any bondage that we have in Adam, total denial of of the bondage of the sin nature. Basically, it's up to you. Pelagianism. Well, uh, obviously, Augustine fought against it uh, with all of his might. Middle of page 10. During all those years of rebellion, where was my free will? What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light and yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. How did those powerful bastions get moved in his heart? Isn't that what Augustine's wrestling with? How did you become my supreme pleasure and joy except that you willed it? If it had been left up to my will, he said, where was my will all those years when I was fighting and struggling? He said, O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. Confessions 9.1. The basic idea of grace in Augustine is God's giving us sovereign joy that triumphs powerfully over, over sin. God sovereignly works in us that we delight in him above all other sources of pleasure. This drives sin away from us. The only way you can fight sin is to love something more. It's that simple. To just deny yourself, sooner or later you're going to give up. It's just the way it is. The only thing that drives out sin is a greater love, a greater pleasure, a greater joy. And only God is big enough for that. And basically the whole idea of sovereign joy is that God has the power to dispel the darkness from your heart and mind by putting his light in it, by putting love for God in the center of our heart. He has that power. We, however, do not have that power to do that to ourselves. Piper wrote this. Here's the catch that made Palladius so angry. Augustine believed it's not in our power to determine what our heart delight will be. We don't have power over our own hearts to choose to love something we have hated or to choose to hate something that we have loved. We don't have that kind of power. You know how Jesus put it this way. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is known by its fruit. How can a bad tree make himself or herself good do we have that power we do not uh i think uh jeremiah said can an ethiopian change his skin or leopard his spots neither can you who are accustomed to evil choose to do good we don't have that power of our own hearts does god however have that power does he have the power to give us a good and noble heart that responds well to the preached word it mentions a good and noble heart that takes the word, believes it, and produces a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. Does God have the power to take a wicked heart out and put a good and noble heart in that responds well to the word? Absolutely has that power. As a matter of fact, if he doesn't, I believe none of us get saved. 
Augustine believed it too. Well, Pelagius was really ticked off by that. <laughs> he said, you know, you're totally taken away from human beings, you know. It, it, it's, it's, it's totally up to God in your scheme. We don't have to do anything, he misunderstood. And so he attacked it. And so there was this struggle with Pelagianism. Page 11. Um, let, me, let me write, page, bottom of page 10 and on to page 11. Who has it in his power to have such a motive present to his mind that his will shall be influenced to believe? Who can welcome in his mind something which does not give him delight? Are you going to accept something in that, that you don't delight in? You can't. But who has it in his power to ensure that something will delight him will turn up or that he will delight in what turns up? A man's free will indeed avails for nothing except to sin if he knows not the way of truth. And even after his duty and his proper aim shall begin to become known to him, unless he also takes delight in and feels a love for it, he neither does his duty nor sets about it nor lives rightly. Now, in order that such a course may engage our affections, God's love is shed abroad in our hearts, not through free will, which arises from ourselves, but through the Holy Spirit, which he has given us. That's the power of God for the salvation of anyone who believes. When he, when he was asked why he spent so much time, even as an old man battling Pelagius, he answered this, first and foremost, because no subject but grace gives me greater pleasure. So what's his basic answer? I enjoy it. I do. I enjoy proclaiming the gospel of grace. I enjoy talking about grace. For what ought to be more attractive to us sick men than grace, grace by which we are healed? For us lazy men than grace, grace by which we are stirred up? For us men longing to act in grace by which we are helped? And so this is the power uh, of the gospel. Freedom for Pelagius was a perfect balance between good and evil presented to the sovereign human will who alone has power to cast the deciding vote. So at every moment, God's handing you a ballot and God has voted for the good and Satan is voting for the bad and you get to cast the deciding vote. That's freedom for Pelagius. Freedom for Augustine was different. Freedom for Augustine was to be so much in love with God and his ways that the very experience of choice is transcended. The ideal of freedom is not so much the autonomous will poised with sovereign equilibrium between good and evil. The ideal of freedom is to be so spiritually discerning of God's beauty and to be so in love with God that one never stands with equilibrium between God and an alternate choice. Rather, one transcends the experience of choice and walks under the continual sway of the sovereign joy of God. John Piper. So I think that that's, that's a whole different way of looking at what freedom is. All right, I'm going to finish up with a couple of comments on Augustine the Mystic. Ordinarily, we're going to break up into groups and discuss it, but Andy's uh, uh, introduction um, at the beginning was very helpful for us to see the whole thing, and that, that's the time that we have. But next time, we'll have some time, hopefully, for discussion. I want to finish by talking about Augustine the Mystic and then Augustine as a preacher, and we'll be done. Augustine the Mystic. What is a mystic? When you think of a mystic, what do you think of? What is a mystic? At least not at that time. They're not engaging in action, but they're spending time contemplating God, uh, developing their love for God, uh, generally in prayer, a lot of prayer and Bible intake, etc. A mystic, you could say, if you're going to reach that level, you might even say what Susan said, that they don't do anything else. You know, it could be at that level. But at any rate, sovereign joy takes deepest roots in the man whose constant hunger and desires after God and God alone. This desire can only be fostered in one seeking God by prayer and meditation on his word. In short, the life of the mystic. Now listen to this. These are things that Augustine wrote. The soul of men shall hope under the shadow of your wings. They shall be made drunk with the fullness of your house. 
and the torrents of your pleasures you will give them to drink. For in you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. Give me a man in love. He knows what I mean. Give me the one who yearns. Give me the one who is hungry. Give me the one far away in this desert who is thirsty and sighs for the spring of the eternal country. Give me that sort of a man. He knows what I mean. But if I speak to a cold man, he does not know what I'm talking about. What he's saying is that hunger, physical hunger even, points to a higher hunger, namely our hunger for God, our hunger to be close to God. He also wrote this, And so admonished to return to myself, I entered into my inmost parts with you leading me on. I was able to do so because you had become my helper. It's an internal journey. He's kind of, you know, taking a journey into himself with God as his helper. I entered and saw with my soul's eye, such as it was, an unchanging light above that same soul's eye, above my mind. He who knows truth knows that light, and he who knows it knows eternity. Love knows it, O eternal truth and true love and beloved eternity. You are my God. To you I sigh day and night, and you beat back the weakness of my gaze, powerfully blazing into me, and I trembled with love and dread, and I found myself to be far from you in the land of unlikeness. This is a man who spent a long, long time on his knees in prayer, a man who is hungry and thirsty for God. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be filled. You know, the book of Psalms talks about as a deer pants for for streams of water, so my soul uh, is thirsty for you, O God. You know what I think? I think we are a bunch of starving people spiritually who are not taking the time to feast on Christ. I I really think so. I think we, we live in a land of plenty and we're spiritually poor, materially rich but spiritually poor. What's the remedy? What's the remedy? Well, I was I was sharing this in our little prayer time before uh, you all came, but um, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a, a pastor at 10th Presbyterian, a radio uh, minister earlier in the 20th century, um, when he was a young man, a new Christian, uh, he was being mentored by an older and a godly man, and they were on a train. They were riding in a train. And his mentor, the godly man, was reading the Bible, and Donald was reading the newspaper. And... Uh, he, he just looked over at his friend as he was just engaged in reading the Bible. And uh, he said, I should really love to have the same knowledge of the Bible that you have. And without putting the book down, without putting the Bible down, his friend said to him, you'll never get it reading the newspaper. And he just kept reading, reading the Bible. At that moment, he folded up the newspaper, <laughs> put it away, reached down, took out his Bible and started to read. And he made a commitment from that point on that nothing would come between him and taking in the Bible every day. He would feed on it. Well, all right, just like what he learned about Bible intake, I would say the same thing is of this kind of passionate prayer and seeking after God. If you want to know God like Augustine did, then seek him. I mean, don't do those other things you're doing and do this instead. And you can't do it except by the power of the Holy Spirit and by faith. You have to believe that something good will happen as a result. You have to believe that if you put aside the paper or whatever is its equivalent in your life and seek God and seek him only and seek him fully, that he'll reward you. Hebrews 11:6 teaches this openly. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and, secondly, that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Now, Landis and I have talked about that before. What is the reward? of those that diligently seek God. God is the reward. It's not like, good, I've sought you, now give me my other thing. <laughs> the, 
person who diligently seeks God doesn't want anything but God. Don't you want to know God the way Augustine did? Look at the language he uses. Either he's like the biggest fake and hypocrite in history or he's onto something we don't know about. Look at the language. Look at the way he describes God on the inside, right inside the page, the way he describes him. All of this, what then are thou my God? Just read over those phrases. Say, do I know God like this? Could I have written something like that? Do I have a passion for God? And if the answer to you is no, if your answer is no, and if you'd like that to change, then put the newspaper aside and get down on your knees and seek him. And stay there until he moves in your heart. And have the Bible right nearby and let him talk to you by the scripture. Just like happened with Augustine when he heard, take and read, take and read. Picked up the scripture and read and God spoke to him. Why don't you close with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the time we've had tonight to study Augustine, barely, barely touching on the surface of all the things this great man of God learned and taught and did. Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, O Lord, to the things that you have taught us. Augustine is a brother in Christ, a teacher, a man who lived 16, 17 centuries ago, 16 centuries ago, a man who can teach us much about seeking you with all of our hearts. But Lord, the ultimate issue is that you, Lord Jesus, are bidding on us to come. As it says in John 7, 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I pray, Lord, that we would come and that we would feast on you, that we would eat from you, that we would drink from you. As you said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever feeds on me will never go hungry. Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters in Christ here would seek you with all of their hearts and that they would find you, that we would believe by faith that if we invest the time on our knees seeking you, saying, Lord, show me yourself, show me how great you are, open my heart up, give me a heart of love for you, that you'll reward us with yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.